The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary. And I have with me, joining me by Zoom actually, my close friend, Pastor Brandon Burks. Brandon, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Brandon is a co-pastor at Westside Reformed Church, along with Zachary Weiss. It's a congregation of the URCNA located in Cincinnati, Ohio. And Brandon and I go way back to his seminary days at Westminster Theological Seminary, where he completed a Master of Arts in Religion, concentrating on theological studies. At that time, we worshiped together and served as volunteers and interns with the youth group at Crossroads Community Church PCA in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. Brandon is married to Tracy. They have three beautiful children. Our families uh, continue to stay in touch and uh, really just delight in spending time with one another, though we live so far distant from one another now. Uh, But we're going to be discussing today Brandon's book, Thinking God's Thoughts, an introduction to a pilgrim worldview. It was published by Fontis Press um, this year, 2021, and I just read it over the weekend uh, it's a great little manual, really, even you could say a catechetical manual, though it's not arranged in question and answer format, for those who want to uh, deepen their worldview, to think in a Christian manner. And Brandon, skipping to the end of the book, you put forward a conception of the Christian life as a pilgrimage. It's right there in your subtitle, even an introduction to a pilgrim worldview, Thus, we are to have this pilgrim worldview. What do you mean, or what does it mean, when you write in the closing chapter that everything in life is subservient to this pilgrimage? Everything in life is subservient to our pilgrimage. Um, And really what that means is that um, we're not wandering around aimlessly, um, bumping along, and just kind of um, falling into various uh, pits or obstacles here and there, but it has a purpose, and 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 I think that's what the Christian life ought to have. We should um, always be aware of where we're headed. We should be aware of kind of the goal in mind. And I like so that um, that quote that you read um, came from a larger section out of. Um, out of a work that Jonathan Edwards wrote um, called um, The Pilgrim Life. And Edwards speaks about a person who is walking and they're on a journey. And he says, when you're out hiking, you are going someplace. Like, you know exactly where the point is that you're hiking to. And every step you take is subservient to get to your journey's end. And so in that way, he invites us to think of the Christian life as a pilgrimage and to be intentional in our day-to-day life as we um, have that pilgrim goal in mind. Um, and, and I think, too, it helps us, as the writer of Hebrews says, to kind of you know shed off the weights of sin that are kind of grappling um, at us or weighing us down. Um, so it, it helps us to kind of think critically also about our life, I think, and saying, what are those things that are 
um, helping my pilgrimage? Maybe what are, are those things that are weighing me down, those sins that might be ensnaring me or uh, influences that might be leading me down a crooked path and not the narrow path? And so I think the pilgrim motif helps us to um, keep who we are uh, in terms of our identity as central and to be intentional in our daily lives. That's really well put, and and I love drawing from that, though it's not really a word that we use a whole lot in our modern parlance. It's it's kind of a, an antiquated term at this point, but it's very familiar to Christians, if for no other reason than the great popularity of the Pilgrim's Progress. And the very common recurring theme in Bunyan's work is this reminder that either evangelist puts before Christian or Christian more frequently puts to himself of where it is he's headed. I'm going to the celestial city. He says that again and again, and it carries him through in both responding to um, to those who would who would waylay him, who would try to slow him down or or tear him off the road, or also just addressing himself, reminding himself, preaching to himself uh, what it is his purpose, his goal is on his pilgrimage, and he's making progress to the celestial city. And I know, I know that. That tale is near and dear to your heart, Brandon. Um, you're even wearing a Pilgrim's Progress shirt right now, though our listeners <laughs> all know that. I can see it here on the Zoom screen. Um, now, going to the beginning of the book, we've looked at the end and now to the beginning. You distinguish between believing and thinking. These, these two concepts, obviously related, but yet distinct. And Christians must hold to certain beliefs. We need to believe uh, something in particular in order to regard ourselves rightly as Christians. But you make the point that we must think in a certain way as well. We must think as Christians, not merely believe as Christians. Unpack this for us. And, and specifically, another passion of yours that I want to hit on, where does catechesis or instruction fit into this? I was reading a, um, a, a Lutheran uh, book called The Lutheran Catechist, written by G.H. Gerberding. And, you know, obviously it was, it was very much tailored to the Lutheran context and Lutheran theology, but he had a ton of practical um, guidance for catechizing children, catechizing new converts. Um, I mean, even down to classroom etiquette was was being discussed in this book. And so just a great book in terms of um, um, learning how to be a, a good catechist. But he made a comment in the book that kind of stuck with me. He said a catechist not only wants to pass down what one ought to believe, uh, but a catechist wants to teach the catechumen, the pupils, how to think. Because if we um, think like pagans, but believe like Christians, there's going to be a contradiction there. Now, of course, nobody's going to be, you know, um, uh, perfectly, and we're always going to have this perfect thought process or whatever. But it, it is something I think that we should strive for, to think God's thoughts after him, as um, many of the uh, uh, theologians have said, Herman Bovink, um, Cornelius Van Til, and so on. Uh, but it, it's important to think God's thoughts after him, to view the world through the lens of the Bible, to think theologically. And um, I think that catechesis helps to shape that. So, so catechizing somebody not only instills the beliefs that are basic to Christianity, but catechizing also shapes the way in which 
we view the world, the way in which we navigate, we make choices um, each and every day that are hopefully shaped by the truths that we know of God. Now, when we're considering this this concept of thinking and thinking God's thoughts after him, which, like you said, is a famous turn of phrase and even um, not mantra or slogan, but just a, a key phrase in Van Til's work and Bavinks, and I, you hear it from Bonson and other presuppositional apologists and theologians. It begs the question, what does it look like not to think God's thoughts after him? What are some, if I can put it this way, competitors to Christianity in terms of thinking? And, 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 and what should we be on the lookout for, especially in our day and age where, where there seems to be a real proliferation of that? Yeah, so you typically when um, when these writers are talking about thinking God's thoughts after him, they are contrasting that to a more autonomous um, kind of uh, rationalism or empiricism or s- some kind of um, other lines of thought where mankind almost gives their mind a godlike role where um, you know, it, I think it, it kind of goes back to the Garden of Eden, I think, as well, as you see um, the temptation that the serpent was bringing to Eve as the um, serpent uh, basically gave, you know, put forth two different hypotheses to Eve. You know, he says, God says you will die, but I say, surely you will not die. And so Eve was given two um, competing hypotheses. And um, really what the the devil was doing there was trying to get her to become the judge, to think autonomously, to, 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 to put on the, the judge's gown and pick up the judge's gavel and, and bring God and Satan into her courtroom. And then from her own foundation, from her own autonomy, judge which word is true and which hypothesis is true. And of course, um, history um, we know through history that she chose um, the, the devil's hypothesis as being true and God's as being false as she brought both of them into her courtroom. And so that would not be thinking God saw us after him. You know, what Eve should have done is what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness uh, by Satan. As the devil was bringing temptations to him, he quoted scripture. He quoted God. He um, showed us what it, what it would be like to think God's thoughts after him in a context where the devil is tempting us to think and, and act in autonomous ways. What theologians or philosophers have had the greatest influence on your thinking? You've mentioned Van Til, you mentioned Bavink as well, um, but you know, are you able to expand on that a little bit or even broaden the field a bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say... Yeah, um, Bavink and Van Til are probably big uh, influences. Um, I've also been influenced by Gerhardus Voss. I've been influenced um, by John Murray. Um, I've been influenced by B.B. Warfield um, and and others. You know, all of the kind of the great um, Reformed uh, thinkers, Turretin, Calvin, and 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 the like. But uh, I think probably the most uh, or the biggest influence that I've had has been from Cornelius Van Til. I think he's really kind of shaped a lot of my um, thinking and um, uh, theology and uh, apologetics and so on and so forth. And, and it, I think it comes out in the book as I interact with Van Til often, um, not quite every chapter, but perhaps almost every chapter. 
And um, I also interacted with him in ways where maybe the reader uh, is not familiar with. So if the reader was only aware of his apologetic material from Defense of the Faith, I actually inter interact with kind of a broader corpus of Antill, bringing in discussion from Common Grace and the Gospel, um, Christian theory of knowledge, and and so on. And so try to interact more broadly with Van Til in the book, um, even speaking of ways, you know, how how he's um, help me think through different uh, biblical passages that might be um, hard to reconcile, um, helping me to be grounded, to think concretely and not abstractly. Um, and that was, I think, something that we all struggled with, you know, those of us who um, came from a tradition that was not Calvinistic coming into it. I know I had a lot of kind of abstract questions, you know, well, if God predestines, why would I pray? And why would I evangelize? And I think our minds are so tempted when we're unaccustomed to thinking God's thoughts after him and thinking concretely. I think that our thoughts are tempted to get into an airplane, to go thousands of feet into the air and ask really kind of bizarre abstract questions. Whereas when we are textual Bible people thinking concretely, um, God has said that we uh, we evangelize because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. How will they hear unless somebody preaches? And and so we need to be Bible people and uh, and, and and also realize that there's some things that we can explain, but perhaps not as fully as our minds might want to. And we should be okay with that. We should be okay with um, saying what the Bible says. And I, I love uh, the quote from John Calvin, where uh, Calvin says, when God shuts his holy mouth, speculation stops. And I think that's just a great habit for us to say what God has said and be okay with mystery, be okay with tension where God has um, um, wanted to allow that. In chapter 10, you discuss limiting concepts and you use a helpful illustration, uh, even drawn from your own family background, and I'll let you talk about what that is. That is a phrase that Van Til um, borrows and recalibrates and reshapes from Kant. Uh, it's a term that Kant would use, uh, but of course Van Til means something different by it. He, he thinks it's a helpful um, phrase to use, um, provided that we understand it in more biblical ways. But what Van Til is doing with li limiting concepts is something a little bit different from, say, paradox in a way that, that Soren Kierkegaard might use paradox. Sometimes when somebody uses the word paradox, they kind of mean two um, contradictions that we just kind of hold there in tension and we're like, well, I don't know, I just affirm both of them. What Van Til was doing with limiting concepts is he was saying, yes, there's tensions that we have to hold. They're, they're not contradictory, though at first, at surface level, they may appear to be. But he would say, we don't just hold them in tension like maybe Kierkegaard might want to do with paradox, but they actually help us interpret each other. They are mutually interpreting. They go together, and together they advance biblical truth. So they don't, they don't just hold intention in a static way, but they belong together in a dynamic way that advances the biblical truths that's contained in the Bible. And so I think that was a helpful 
um, category to bring out in the book. And of course I use, so I use my grandmother as an example. Uh, my grandmother, uh, she is Jap or was Japanese. Uh, she passed away a few years ago, but, um, uh, by God's grace, I was actually able to baptize her before she passed away. Um, but so, you know, whenever I'd go to her house, she had chopsticks all over the place and um, a whole jar of chopstick. And, and they were just, you know, from different sets. And I, I, I don't think that she ever was able to use like an actual set because they were all just mixed and um, intermingled together. But I think that's a helpful illustration um, and as you know, I, as I was at Westminster, um, that was a, a common way that people would speak about limiting concepts um, was about you know, these two truths that belong together, help interpret each other and together advance biblical truth. And so, for example, if I opened my drawer up, if um, I brought ch uh, Chinese food home and I opened my drawer to get my chopsticks out and I only saw one truth or only one chopstick, I would just know that the other one has to be there, and I would begin looking for that other chopstick. And in the same way, as we see um, got the, uh, one of these truths that, are, that perhaps are limiting concepts, uh, we know that the other one is uh, close by or, or helping to advance that, uh, that, that uh, particular truth. I think that's really the key is that you need both in order to accomplish what it is you're wanting to accomplish. If you only have one chopstick, you're not going to make it very far through the low main. But if you have two, then you can actually pick up those noodles and, and get to work. And so the same thing with limiting concepts and the way that Van Til uh, defines them and the way you've just described them so helpfully is you, you bring the two together in order to, to make headway on, on the the plate that's been set before you, so to speak. Uh, it leads me to another question, Brandon, and, and I know you've spoken extensively about this in, in other venues and on you know other blogs and podcasts, but tell us a little bit about your own background. You've been a pastor for a while, but before you were in the URCNA, you were in a very different context. And so why don't you just very briefly tell us, as you were writing this book, what else was going on in your life and how you went from point A to then point B. I grew up Roman Catholic um, in the while I was serving in the Navy. Um, my wife and I, we joined a, a Southern Baptist church. That's really the time where I came to faith in Christ. Um, I, I don't think that I really understood the gospel at all while I was uh, a Roman Catholic. And I uh, got really excited about my faith when I was in the Navy. Um, that's where I got the call to ministry. Um, the um, Navy with the, with the uh, GI Bill, I was able to go to Boys College in Louisville, Kentucky, where I got a BA in apologetics. And from there, and it was really at Boys College, I started becoming more Calvinistic in my, in my thinking. And I was growing more and more reformed. I wanted to go to Westminster in uh, Glenside, Pennsylvania. So I um, moved out there. And, and actually, um, you and, and Pastor Dave were the first two people that uh, came out and helped help me actually move in and unpack, um, unpack the van to, 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 uh, to start uh, school at Westminster and internship at Crossroads. And uh, but yeah, while I was at Crossroads in Westminster, I was still a Baptist. I would have considered myself a Reformed Baptist, holding to you know 1689 covenant theology and and all that uh, fun stuff. And after Westminster, I, I took I, I took a call to 
um, a Baptist church in northern Kentucky, and I pastored there for over three years. And so this book actually is interesting because this book I wrote as a Baptist, but I was able to edit during transition uh, before I sent the final copy to the publisher. Um, I did. I did not have too much to edit with this book because even to even from the very beginning of of writing this book as a Baptist, I wanted to write it in a broadly Calvinistic ecumenical way. I guess. I mean, I wanted I wanted it to be an enjoyable book that somebody from the Presbyterian tradition, Dutch Reformed tradition, Reformed Baptist tradition, um, Reformed Ang- Anglican tradition, perhaps. Uh, I just wanted a book that uh, a broad, broadly Calvinistic uh, st- stream of thought, I guess, could pick up the book, enjoy it, agree with it. I, I stayed out of the weeds on like baptism debates. I stayed out of the weeds on a lot of covenantal debates. Um, again, very, very basic. And so as I was in transition editing, there were a few things that I did edit out. Um, as I was um, making that final that final proof, but um, but yeah, so I, I I interact, for example, with the 1689 confession. Um, but typically, when I interact with the 1689, it's where they're almost identical to the Westminster. Um, and so I think that uh, um, yeah, a broad a broad readership would 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 appreciate the book. I think, um, even though I think it's probably slanted more toward the Reformed Presbyterian side of things. Who particularly is your intended audience? Pastors and officers or lay people, teenagers, adults? You know, who do you envision seeing, reading this book? I think when, when you're a pastor of a church and you're writing a book, it's hard not to have your congregation in view. And so as I was writing this book, um, I, I really did have my you know, uh, Baptist congregation in view of things that I think would help them, um, truths that I think that they would um, appreciate to hear. And uh, so, I mean, the the book, I think, is written, uh, you know, I wanted it to be accessible to a lay audience. And I'm, I'm so thankful for the publisher because and, and the editor at, um, um, who were involved with with all of this because they pressed me over and over again to simplify, to make it more clearer. Uh, And so, you know, I was constantly going back and and, and asking, how can I, how can I make this uh, more simple and, and kind of take out uh, unnecessary jargon and, and and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think it's for the, the lay audience, but hopefully um, it's enjoyable to pastors and, and officers and, and everyone else. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I had in mind maybe a um, a Bible study, a Sunday school, you know, people in the pew kind of coming together and thinking through the book. Now, the book does have three parts to it. Uh, part one of the book is Foundations. And in, in that section, I, I basically go over the, the basics of Christianity. We talk about the Trinity. We talk about the Bible and how it's, you know, inerrant and fallible and that kind of thing. And um, attributes of God and his simplicity and so on and so forth. And so I, I unpack that in part one and just kind of lay, I think, a good foundation for people. Part two is probably the most difficult of in, in terms of subject material that, you know, content 
Uh, it's going to be more difficult. That's where we get into more categories, limiting concepts and uh, concrete thinking and uh, working through uh, causes and responsibilities. And, you know, if God, for example, is the ultimate cause of, of everything, then then why are we responsible? So, you know, that's one of the questions that that I grapple with in that in that section. So I think part two is a helpful section that gives categories to people to understand these things. Um, but at the same time, part two is probably going to be the most uh, difficult of, of the material. And then part three is more practical. So there's a chapter on um, tips on reading the Bible. Uh, there's a chapter on um, the pilgrim worldview or the pilgrim mindset. The, there's a chapter that, that speaks about liturgy and the means of grace. So uh, the part three, I think, would be a, a helpful book, a, a helpful way to land the book, I guess, to where you're kind of landing in a more practical realm. Where And what I wanted to do was, and I, I guess the, the thought process of laying it out in that way is that as you are grounded in the foundations, you're given categories of thought, then in part three, you then learn how to take up and read for yourself. And as you take up and read and you interpret the book, um, the Bible, uh, with kind of armed with those categories, ready to, to unpack God's truth and walk as a pilgrim. Um, and so that was kind of, I, th I think, the thought process of, of why to lay it out and such a way. But um, but yeah, I, I, in terms of audience, lay audience is what I had in mind. Um, of course, it uh, might not be, you know, the best for a brand new convert or something, uh, but certainly somebody who's starting to ask questions and wants to grow, wants to, to get with other people uh, in the church and uh, discuss matters of, of theology. As I was reading it, I found it to be a demanding book, but appropriately so um, for that very audience. And it doesn't really begin in, in with any kind of uh, strenuous mental demands. But as you work through chapter by chapter, it does get progressively more and more involved and, and more and more demanding, but again, appropriately so. And that's why at the beginning of this conversation and as I was reading it and knowing you well, I, I kept on having come into my mind this idea that what you've written here is a catechetical manual. It's something that I as a pastor can use to disciple an individual or teach a class and you know even a discussion based class have people read a chapter every week and come in and discuss it together uh, with you know some with a moderator who, who is a bit more steeped in the material himself and it would be appropriate I think you know for intelligent thoughtful teenagers on up and and certainly I've met folks in all walks of life who I can imagine, whom I can imagine reading this book and benefiting greatly from it. Brandon, before I let you go, I do want to hear about this for nothing else for my own benefit. What are you working on today? So um, I'm actually been um, thinking about um, working through an ocular catechism. Uh, that's a word that was used by um, w William Perkins. And um, so, you know, as I, uh, I, I homeschool my children, I'm a tutor at the co-op group. And so I'm, I'm really involved with my local homeschooling groups. And there's a need for a good theological curriculum um, where children can not only hear and, and, and read in a book, but, but see it mapped out, um, see it kind of flowing on a chalkboard. 
And so there's a, a book that I've been working on called um, Theology on the, on, on the Chalkboard. And it's a, basically an ocular catechism where I would ask uh, the, the child to basically memorize how to kind of map it out. And, and each one has um, almost the same basic structure to it with the components differing, uh, depending on what we're talking about. And so that's kind of been a project that I've, I've been working on. Um, hoped uh, to have that out, I don't know, in a few years perhaps, but um, uh, yeah, so just want to help get good um, theological curriculum into the hands of parents, um, and, 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 I, and I think that uh, more and more the, um, in our day especially, that the more visual that you can um, uh, display something that uh, the more readily you can capture um, people's uh, attention and and also understanding. I think it's it's easier to to understand things. And even at, as I reflect back on my seminary days, some of the classes that I had that really stuck with me were the classes where the professor would kind of map it out on the chalkboard, and we'd have these elaborate kind of you know diagrams flowing this way or that way. Uh, with all the pieces and components right on on the chalkboard, and those were the ones that really stuck with me because not only did I hear it, but I saw it, and not only did I see it, but I saw it worked out piece by piece and how it fits with Scripture, and so I wanted to bring that to a more uh, basic level for children in elementary on up. That was a f- famous teaching method by uh, Van Til, and certainly his students and, and their students after them have picked up on that. Dr. Curdo here at the seminary teaching from a Van Tilian perspective in our apologetics classes um, uses, uh, you know, the famous, you know, creator-creature, uh, two circles diagram, and, and, and also the, um, the square of opposition diagram, and um Certainly, even just reading, even reading things from Voss. I mean, you see his diagram in his commentary or little book on Hebrews, the the triangular diagram showing forth uh, the fulfillment and foreshadowing dynamic there in in Christ. So, this has been a great conversation, Brandon. I always enjoy talking with you and and just as friends and and hearing about what you're working on, and certainly an ability uh, or an opportunity to highlight this uh, this useful manual that you've prepared is is one that. Uh, is an opportunity I want to take. So thank you so much for your time. And folks, again, we've been talking about Thinking God's Thoughts, an introduction to a Pilgrim Worldview from Fontes Press by J. Brandon Burks. It is available wherever books are sold, and I heartily recommend it to you. It's not an expensive book, but it is a valuable book in terms of deepening your own grip on the basics of the Christian faith and what it means to think biblically. Brandon, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.